0: I was a terrible accountant because all I did, I should have been looking at spreadsheets, but I wanted to walk around and talk with everyone.
1: This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. And welcome back to the CE Drive podcast in this episode, we're going to be talking with Steve McEwen from MyHSA. Steve is one of the most highly respected voices in Group Benefits. This is a nice follow-on to our recent conversations with uh, Dave Patriarch and with uh, Mike Clenahan, And you'll also hear Steve refer to Lori Power, who's been I guess, on a couple of past episodes. So uh, we're really starting to build a nice, robust library of group benefits, relevant content. And actually, some of the stuff Steve talks about here is also relevant for the individual advisor. I know uh, health spending accounts are very popular for the sort of owner-operator or owner-manager businesses out there. Uh, Lots of great content here. Uh, This episode will be good for an accident and sickness credit in Alberta in all other jurisdictions it would be good for life insurance credits, it'd be good for an IAS credit, it'd be good for an IROC professional responsibility credit, it would be good for your IAS or Advocates credits and approved by FP Canada for a financial planning credit. So as mentioned, Steve, our guest is one of the most highly respected voices in the group benefit space in Canada. I think a big part of the reason for this is that he and his partner, uh, Tim, have really specialized. They have sought to say, we're going to do spending accounts, as you'll hear Steve talk about in the interview. Once they realized that that was going to be their business, they got out of the advisory or uh, benefits rep business. And really built that health spending account business and people that are watching my HSA of course now know that my HSA has a significantly larger set of offerings so they have partnerships with companies like pocket pills for example and with those type of arrangements, what I really like to see here is that it continues to allow them to specialize and I don't know if I would say they specialize in Spinning accounts or in the technology around getting these things in front of advisors and their clients. Uh, But I think that there's a degree of specialization there that they really do benefit from. And of course, you've heard me talk about that value of specialization quite a bit. I do think that it's something that we can all strive to is figuring out where we live and where we uh, can deliver our best value for our customers. I think. Steve and Tim and my HSA really embody that. And you hear Steve talk about even pursuing his uh, SEBs and then fellow of SEBs certification here. I'm a huge fan of that kind of thing. Um, Obviously, I'm biased towards uh, ongoing education. So kudos to Steve, who was already running a successful business when he set down that path for saying, you know, this is something I can do. To bring again better value to my customers, to participate in that community, as he mentions in the episode. So, again, find those education opportunities that are going to help you to augment your business, help you to have more confidence, and help you to uh, deliver better value. And you hear it in the interview where there's a couple places where you might hear Steve make a, a comment to the effect of, well, that. Kind of hurts our business, but we know that it's the it's the right thing. He's not focused just on the survival of his business. Uh, He focuses on, I think, the well being of his uh, customers and the well being of the industry. And I think that comes from having a high degree of confidence. And I think that confidence comes from just having built a good fundamental business where he doesn't live in fear every day of some change. I think uh, the amount of change that's happened since uh, my HSA started is astounding. And I think anybody who looks at this, and I don't mean within the business, I mean external pressures. And I do hear this. I hear a lot of folks who sort of complain about that pace of change or the amount of change. And I, I get that that can be painful. I think there's a difference here between saying, To some extent, that change actually helps us. That when we see those external changes, a lot of times that's why our clients need us. And I'm not suggesting that we should be seeking complexity, but the more complex the market you're in, I would suggest the greater the need that your clients have for what you offer. And of course, a big part of that uh, offering should be helping to make complicated things simple. And I think that you'll find people who who use an HSA provider like my HSA um, do get that value, that you shouldn't be making your life more complicated by using a service provider like this. You should find that your life gets a little bit easier. The color for today's episode is green. The color for today's episode is green. A concept that's come up here along the way quite a bit, actually, we talked about this previous with Lori Power as well, is this idea of what is insurance? And uh, Steve picks on, of course, the common one you'll hear people talk about, which is vision care. Uh, If you have vision care in a group benefits plan, the way that this really works is, let's say you have $250 of vision care or maybe $250 every two years. Those the most pretty common types of coverage today. That effectively means that you're going to have anybody who needs glasses go to their eye doctor and probably have a $250 claim on whatever cycle they're allowed to do it on. And the plan sponsor, the employer, is going to end up paying $250 uh, plus the insurer's target loss ratio, so maybe somewhere around $310 or $320, and you know you're going to incur that expense. It can work out well in a very large group. In a very large group, you'll have enough people who don't necessarily need vision care that it does become at least a, a cost-efficient expense or a tax-efficient expense because, of course, the benefit there is that you are... Uh, deducting that cost and the employee gets that money tax-free. However, there's a question of whether that's really insurance or not. That is, if you know you've got a 1,000 employees and you know 600 of them are going to make that $250 claim and they can't claim any more than that, it's not like if you go to the eye doctor and you have a medical emergency that you're going to have a huge bill out of that Uh, If you go to the eye doctor and there's some further complications there, you're typically moving off of vision care and onto your pyramids for your plan. So there's not really any element of insurance there. And that's where a lot of people say, well, that's exactly what a health spending account is for, is to have a, a tax and cost efficient way to manage those types of claims. Now, Steve talks about dental care as well, and dental care is another area where there's this question of whether or not we really have insurance. Again, if I have a 1,000 employees, I know that there's going to be some proportion of them, maybe 850 of them, who are going to use their full set of basic dental services every single year. And we know that. That's just a thing that happens Is that really insurance then? And again, if you have a a dental emergency, uh, within the insured dental services, you're typically going to have fairly strict limits. So if you happen to need a, a root canal, for example, that's still something that's going to run into limits within your dental plan. Again, if it's a true medical emergency, something that would send you to the hospital, then you're going to move on to paramed services for anything that's not covered by your provincial health plan. This is where we're starting to see questions about whether or not it makes sense to have insured dental. And I don't have an opinion on this one way or the other, but I think it is something to consider. Now, you'll find a lot of larger plans will move to ASO, administrative services only, which is effectively where you're saying, we're just going to use an insurer to administer claims it's actually kind of similar to a health spending account it's just typically on a larger scale and that insurer then will administer all the claims it ends up being the plan sponsor who actually pays for those claims so you're essentially taking out the sh- the insurance element or adding an element of self-insurance however you want to look at it but it's a way to make those more efficient and really the larger that a Uh, plan gets, the more members you have on it, the more stuff you can ASO. It's very common, for example, to have, uh, let's say, short-term disability plans ASO'd. Uh, You can't actually ASO long-term disability anymore, at least not on a tax-efficient basis. Uh, The collapse of Nortel led to a realization. Nortel had a self-insured or an ASO'd uh, long-term disability plan, and when Nortel collapsed, there was not enough money in the uh, long-term disability self-insured pool to pay out the obligations that all the various uh, claimants had at the time. And that's where the federal government realized that this was creating risk for plan members and said, hey, if you're going to self-insure your ASO plan, you can't deduct those costs, which really creates a disincentive to uh, self-insure that plan. That being said, the federal government still does self-insure its long-term disability plans. All right, let's uh, hear what Steve has to say. Uh, He covers a lot of ground in this interview, and you'll hear that uh, I learned quite a bit in this, and I hope when I'm learning, you're learning as well. All right, we're joined today by Steve McEwen. Steve is with uh, MyHSA, which is a I guess, a third-party administrator. Is that where you fall into this category, Steve? Kind of, sure. We'll go as that. All right. Uh, I mean, you do a broad range of stuff on the benefits side, right? Really a service provider, I think, for for benefits advisors?
0: Correct. Yeah, it's uh, when people... I was telling my wife last night, like Tim and I both hate the question on what we do because it's so unique. But uh, yeah, we we kind of only work with financial, insurance, and benefit advisors. So that's the one thing that makes us a little bit unique is our platforms only used by those individuals and we don't work direct with any of the companies.
1: So I think what might be useful here for people to understand, this is at least how I, th- I think about your business, is look at my HSA when it really was just purely about HSA and then where you've gotten today. Is that, can you give
0: us that rundown? Exactly. Like when we describe the business, we usually go in a linear fashion, kind of how we came to be. And my background is I was a benefits only advisor prior to my HSA. And really, what we did, we ran a paper based health spending account for our clients here in Calgary and uh, realized one day that our antiquated uh, Microsoft Access database program. Um, wasn't going to cut it. So we actually went out and we we explored the options out there in the industry. And what we found was it, with health spending accounts, so we love them as a lead generator, but what we found was typically the advisor has the relationship. And then for some reason with health spending accounts, they would send off to a third party and the third party would just assume the relationship, so they'd basically be like, "You take, we'll get your clients, we'll take care of them for you," um, and that was the end of it. When where when I was an advisor, I would use them as a lead generator because we were inside of a property and casualty brokerage, so I was trying to go in and get employee benefits from property and casualty accounts, um, and it was a fantastic lead generator, and it almost worked like a CRM system. I had a reason to. If I had the HSA with them, I would follow up with them at renewal. I already kind of had the client relationship, and then I could round out and try and get the, the rest of the group benefits business. So we essentially built the version 1.0 for our own uh, uses. We built an app. We kind of saw what was out there, thought we could do it, do it ourselves. And then a few advisors in Calgary started asking us, Hey, I, we hear you guys have this app. Can we use it? That's kind of when the light bulb went off, and we said, "Okay, well, maybe we could just give it to other advisors and and let them use it." So we started doing that with a few pilot brokers in Calgary, and then we really quickly came to the realization that we couldn't be in the business anymore in order to truly scale it. So at that point, my partner Tim Kane sold the. Brokerage, the PNC brokerage and the group benefits business in 2013. And then we were off on our own from there on. So we primarily started in the health spending account business and then moved into the taxable wellness accounts. And then uh, quickly after that, the flexible accounts. So the idea the employee at the beginning of the year gets a lump sum of money and they can allocate between a health spending account and a wellness account. Um, so that was the spending account realm. Since then, we've kind of deviated even further and added wraparound insurance products. So things like travel, catastrophic, critical illness, uh, life insurance. And then even beyond that, we've partnered with other tech firms in Canada and done things like, um, pet insurance, um, insurance. We've got like Sino, which is a wellness platform. Uh, We've really kind of gone out and and figured out, is there any other benefits that we could tie in and, and put in the offering that would be super unique to advisors and their clients? And it's all on a platform. So basically, we give the platform to the advisors and let them manage their clients' spending accounts and any other products that they want to wrap around it.
1: So if I'm an advisor, then, and I'm using my HSA, is it sort of like I have this group and I say this group, there's five out of the 25 things on the list that would be useful here. That's what I'm sort of going to offer them. And this other group might be 12 things and this other group might be three things. Is that essentially how it works?
0: Exactly. So so the the idea is customization. So we love it when an advisor takes our platform and it's white labeled and essentially makes it their own. And then what they can do is customize for each client exactly what type of benefits package is best for that client and it's turnkey. So they don't have to worry about any of the claims, processing, any of the billing, anything like that. That's all built into the system. But yeah, that that's our wish list is when we have advisors that basically take it and run with it. And that's the, probably the number one thing that people value most from the platform is the level of customization, because we've now gone into ASO type plans. We've got a marketplace product. Um, yeah, and it's all about customization for us. I'm
1: curious here, I mean, we're recording this sort of in the throes of this terrible lockdown and this cancellation of Christmas in Alberta, right? so <laughs> Calgary, I in mean, Edmonton, we're both not going to have a, any family Christmas this year, I guess. Um, I'm curious about, because this, this idea, this, uh, you know, COVID, of course, has put a ton of financial strain on a ton of companies across the country. And in terms of flex benefits, that type of thing, you know, there's I think there's a whole bunch of kind of tests for those programs with what we've seen over this last year. Can you talk a little bit about, say, lessons learned or experiences out of COVID?
0: Yeah. So for us, we've been in a fortunate position, obviously being a tech first company. So we went to, uh, you know, work from home basically within an email and just said, everyone stay home. Everything's operational, but that's been the biggest thing. I mean, claims stopped when everything shut down. Um, so that was, that was not great, but then once things opened up, uh, what you saw in the industry, the insurance companies, they responded fantastic with kind of dropping premiums and everything like that but then once it all started back up again what you saw was um people questioning if we're paying premiums and can't use the service maybe insurance isn't the option and we should look at self-funding self-funding can come in the form of health spending accounts it can come in the form of aso plans and for covid What it's done, I think, is put a spotlight on the option of self-funding. And I've talked to other, uh, like I know you've talked to BBD, like we've talked to other partners, and they've seen the same thing as the desire for ASO or self-funding plans has gone way up. Because people are really starting to question is, if there's another shutdown or claim volumes low, self-funding is a great way to save a bunch of money. Um, Cause you only pay what you use um, that coupled with uh, the insurance companies. And I almost feel bad for them because I understand what they're trying to do because they need to try and forecast next year's claim volume. But what they've had to do with the renewals this year is basically put in claims that didn't necessarily occur for 2020 so that they could forecast the claims. But to an employer, that looks very bad optically. So basically, I didn't have the claims, but you're putting in basically phantom claims um, and my renewals going up and in a a tough year for a lot of companies with revenue. So they're kind of saying like, okay, what are my options here, advisors? And this is where the self-funding is coming in. So we've seen a big pickup on plans on our end
1: yeah it's a i I really do i agree with you i kind of feel and i know it's a hard sentiment to express but (laughs) i feel for the insurers they have
0: a an almost impossible problem here Uh, i totally agree because and i mean this is the the part with group benefits that um that i love is is that it's all just math so really like Uh, And I know Lori Power does a great statement, which is, and Dave Patriarchs, which say like a contract is just group benefits is a promise to the employees. A lot of what we do as advisors is we're just trying to figure out the funding around it. So insurance companies do the same thing is you're just trying to figure out what's that right level of premium versus claims. Um, And there's different ways to do it. Self-funding, or you can let an insurance essentially become a bank. And figure and smooth out the funding. Um, but yeah, they're in a tough spot because you know claims are gonna go up, especially if there's a vaccine. Um, claims are gonna come back to normal or maybe even be higher. So if they're too low on the renewal rates, you're just putting off the pain one more year. Um, so it is, it is, it's a really tough spot for them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And they gave the the premium discounts, a lot of them gave substantial premium discounts or premium refunds during this time. And now you get your renewal and it shows an increase. It can really feel like you're you're paying just a bunch more than you were paying a few months ago for something that your employees really arguably didn't use. Totally.
0: And the one thing I would say is th- this type of situation completely shows the value of an advisor, in my opinion, because this is very complex. If you're just getting a renewal mailed to you, you you have no idea. Like this is a prime example where an advisor can walk you through what they're doing right or wrong, and then let them make a decision as to like, you know, here's some options, but maybe it's not crazy to stay with the insurer because they just need to understand why they're forecasting the claims this way. Um, And to different insurers are Different premium or different um, uh, incentives or, or cost savings, so they all didn't do that the same way. So it's confusing for uh, the end users depending on which carrier you work with.
1: It would be interesting to see what happens with shopping plans right now. It's uh, I I would hope advisors are largely discouraging this. I can't imagine it's a great time to be out shopping, but I bet the temptation is high.
0: Yeah, and it it again, and this is where like I always if, if the advisors not an order taker but actually advising the clients I agree with you they're probably saying now is not the time like let's just but but to be honest there is a lot of desire from employers to look at self-insuring so I feel like it maybe isn't a shopping to insurance companies but it's a rethinking of the funding arrangement um, with plans right. like for example vision's always the easiest one, but dental is the one that really has come under the the spotlight and said, do we need to insure dental? Because, um, if you have a maximum, like say you have an overall maximum of $1,500 per person in a family, do you need to insure a $1,500 expense as an employer or as an employee? Um, Maybe you do, because, and the argument I always say against, again, this is like against my business, but the argument is, if the if you're in a business where cash flow is up and down, then having it insured might make a ton of sense only because you have consistent um, budgeted premium amounts, so you don't have a big fluctuation in cash. But if you've got the cash, is it does it make sense to insure $1,500 per employee? It's just a question. And maybe it does, maybe it doesn't.
1: Yeah, and especially, I mean, dental is a great example because you're typically going to see that spike near the year end when dentists are harassing their clients to get in at the, like before the December 31st recalls, right?
0: So, uh, Yeah. There's nothing that aggravates employee benefits people. You drive by and see that. I, I still take picture and show um, and we make more money if they do do that with spending accounts, but I'll still take a picture and send to our team and be like, this is so frustrating. This is not what insurance is supposed to be. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's the opposite of insurance. When you do that, it's, totally, it's, yeah. Um, I know we're maybe this, uh, this uh, horse is well out of the barn here, but I uh, can you just define what an HSA is
0: for us, Steve. So Basically, I believe it was back in the 80s when Paul Martin was the finance uh, minister is when they were created. And essentially, the government decided to give small employers the ability to offer and and reimburse employees medical expenses tax free. So the concept is they can give the employee a small business can give the employee, say, fifteen hundred dollars. The employee can use that money towards medical expenses that are defined by the medical exempt tax credit. So it's the same list that's used for HSAs and, and personal medical exempt tax credits. And the the company can write it off as a deduction and it's a tax-free benefit to the employee. The idea, I believe it's because small employers, not all small employers, it's not easy to get insured plans. So there was a gap, um, in coverage and so this tool was put into place in the 80s to allow small employers to give employees a tax-free benefit
1: and of course you have a background you're former and maybe even still an accountant right so
0: no yeah we um so when prior to coming into group benefits which like most people in the industry i didn't know anything i didn't know group benefits was an industry or a a career path I was an accountant at an oil and gas company in Calgary. Um, I was a terrible accountant because all I did, I should have been looking at spreadsheets, but I wanted to walk around and talk with everyone. So I probably wasn't the best accountant. But when I came into the benefits world and we ran our own health spending account, I completely grabbed, I went right to this HSAs being something with the Income Tax Act and I could kind of dive in and sink my teeth in. And it just made... When the first time I read it, I went, Oh, this is a no brainer. Why wouldn't every company or every business owner have this? Like, it's just a no brainer.
1: How much do you dig into the sort of tax complexity around this? You know, I think about like the 90% rule that says 90% of your expenses have to be on site. And right now, and now it's been delayed by a year, but we're sort of dealing with this uh, shift from health and welfare trusts to employee life and health trusts. How much does that? show up in your business? Do you care about any of that? Or is that sort of all just
0: noise? No, we dive into it pretty, pretty hard. Um, And the reason being is, to no fault of their own is there's, there's not a lot of corporate accountants that really know anything about HSAs or even a lot about health benefits. Um, So there's, there's kind of five different spots, you know, five or so different spots in the income tax act. That are really defined in the health benefits space and so what we've always found is knowing those inside and out is a huge advantage less on on operating the plan once you actually know how to operate phsps or hsas um, but more to help advisors approach their accountants in a warm way so basically like you want to go to the accountant um, and put it on a silver platter and say Here's the exact documents. Here's the sections of the documents that we, here's what we think. And again, because we're not accountants and, and, you know, the advisors aren't trying to be their accountants, but we want to work with their accountants. So we break it down and know it inside and out so that we can bring the accountant into the conversation. And the biggest reason being is that when, if it's a business owner and it's a small group, um, there's a lot of questions around shareholder benefits and if they're even allowed to have a PHSP. That's the number one question we have, and that's the number one question we should have. Then the 90% rule, because we have to figure out once CRA relaxed um and came up with this 90% rule, we have to figure out how we're gonna actually accommodate that. And that one was it's one of the hardest things. Like we almost are upset that they came up with this 90% rule because it's just, it's so gray and it's really hard to actually administer claims with this kind of 10% buffer. Um, And we also want to know it inside and out because with that, you start to get a sense of what CRA kind of thinks and feels about these things. And if anything, we've seen a position um, of CRA going, "Ah, they're not even sure of what these things how they should be ran so they're actually like leaning towards opening them up a little bit more like that's exactly what the 90 percent rule i bet they went we every time we're asked to go and audit these they probably have a heck of a time trying to audit these so they're like we need a little bit of a buffer when we go to actually audit medical expense items because we don't really want to try and get the tax on these vitamins um, you know it's probably not a big revenue generator for CRA either in an audit situation. So
1: yeah, the, the vitamin thing is a great example, massage therapy in Alberta, you know, this kind of thing that, and I know that CRA sometimes gets a reputation for picking a fight with the little guy, but I think it's a good example of where they're really trying to avoid that.
0: Yeah. And we've seen a few different, um, like not audits. Cause like, honestly, we haven't. CRAs never come and audited us. Some of our clients, like they'll, cause think about it. If the client's getting audited, the medical benefits will be a line item. Yes. So this can include multiple things as well as an HSA. So they've got to go through and look at it all. Um, so we've been not involved in that and we've never seen an issue with anything, but every time we see CRA looking at it, they're pretty practical with the whole thing. So for example, Um, like if they're looking at a shareholder's benefit, CRA sets out like three questions to ask. They clearly define it in the old health and welfare trust document on what you need to look for and the questions that need to be asked. I've seen a form. So their form that they ask for is literally each question and a little box where you give an answer to it. Um, So if the accountant knows about these questions ahead of time, and knows that this is this is going to be a, a shareholder's benefit is where they really can make their the most revenue on their end. Spicy sports, you know, that's the one that they really, if they're going to go after something, it's large claims, in my opinion, large claims and claim that it's a shareholder's benefit. Um, but they just ask the question. So if you know the answers, or if you have them documented, they answered the question, and CRA was fine with it. And then too, even on, on medical expenses, they just ask the question. And if there's a reasonable, you know, if there's the proper backup, proper receipts, everything like that, then it's not, they're not, you know, hunting for people to figure out and, and make these expenses offside or anything like that. So let's say that let's work with a small
1: group here, a five, five life group, for example, or five employee group. We've got the shareholder slash proprietor of the business and four employees and all arm's length employees for the sake of argument. So the spouse right. doesn't work there, nothing like that. What would be, let's say, and I know that's it's hard to give specifics here. So if you can give us some general thoughts around this, but presumably you're going to have the four employees at 500 or 300 or maybe a thousand dollars of health spending account or of overall wellness or overall... Uh, yep overall defined contribution benefits, or I can't remember what wording you used to package it all together earlier. Flex plan. Flex plan. Thanks. Um, And then the, uh, the business owner, what's sort of the, what's the most that that person should reasonably be setting up for themselves?
0: Yeah. So, and that's probably like the number one common situation that we find. And again, different people, even different accountants will have different opinions. So, our first answer to that is make check with your accountant. um, But here's all of the documents. So here's the shareholder document and everything that references. But so what we so that you can create, you can class employees. So one would say that that owner is as long as they're also a participating employee T Ford so that that T four is important because that clearly establishes in CRA's eyes that that person is an employee, not a shareholder. If they're taking dividends, this is where it starts to get a little money. And different accountants will have different views. Some don't worry about it. They can they can make the case. They're confident they can make the case that they're an employee. Yeah, because
1: technically the Income Tax Act doesn't say you have to take salary to be considered an employee. I know there's that uh, gray area, right? But let's go with you're taking at least your thirty five hundred bucks of T four salaried.
0: Yes. So, so basically, if there's a T4, that's one thing. And then and then it starts to get gray. So CRA doesn't say uh, shareholders or, or executives only get X dollar amount. This is where the amount that that employee is given, the industry is generally 10 to 15% of T4 income. Um, and I always hate the because ind- even when I came into it, there's all these industry kind of like grandfathered, this is how it's done. But until someone shows me, so I would go test everything and be like, show me in the income tax act where it says it, because I just need to see it in order to tell someone. But 10 to 15%, I believe is more of an employee benefits approach, which makes sense. Meaning that if if your benefits is 10 to 15% of your income, that's generally reasonable compensation package. So if you were, Um, And again, this is part of the shareholders' questions is they say, what's the amount that you're giving? And is it reasonable if we were to compare this employee, who's also a shareholder, but they're an employee, to someone else in a different company, would their compensation be similar? Um, This year is the first year where I've thought about actually buying the – there's a compensation – report you can buy i can't remember what it's called but i wanted to buy it just because i wanted to actually see per the roles start to see compensation package because that's what i would defend it against if, if i was is i would say like well here's a role similar size company uh their compensation package is ten thousand dollars one could argue if you were pushed to it that this is a reasonable hsa limit because a lot of times this is the only benefit that that employee, that shareholder executive is getting. So it could be higher dollar amount. Um, so that's how we do it is it's, it's very gray again. And this is why we only work with advisors is they have to really walk through the process and try and figure out potentially with their accountant what's reasonable. Um, we have checks and balances in our system though, because when we first started, we learned that not all advisors are created equal, and we would randomly come across some fifty thousand dollar HSAs, and we're very conservative, so we would freak out and go figure out why on earth is the limit so high. Um, but again, too, a lot of times it's completely reasonable. As they said, their account's okay with it. This is a doctor private, you know, it's incorporated, it's 100% T Ford income. Um, you know, we think that's well within reason. Um, here's the do, here's the accountant's letter saying that they're, they're backing it up. Okay, fine. So but we have anything over, I believe it's 20,000 in our system. We actually don't let them put it in the system. They have to vet it with us first, because we want to make sure that all these questions are being asked. So, yeah, that's how we approach that. You don't want to have
1: a whole bunch of your clients get into trouble all at the same time. That's not a sort of healthy outcome. No, No, and I think
0: if CRA ever did come to look at our practices, we want to be able to show them, um, here's our steps, here's our processes, and they're actually built into the software. So it's kind of like, you know, we'll protect the advisors from themselves, meaning that because sometimes they don't, you know, They don't know. There's a lot of different things in in the insurance and advising financial planning industry. Like you don't know everything. So we'll kind of protect them from themselves.
1: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. When we do this in class, I mean, we talk about the spicy sports case in class. And when I talk about it, I sort of set it up like if you owned a ski shop, how much would you pay that person to manage that ski shop? And then if you pay them that much and they came to you and said, how much can I get for health benefits, and and then we talk about spicy sports. And so it's you know I, I I like that idea of yeah what's what's reasonable here, right? That's that's really what it comes down to. And like you say, the physician who in, earns three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, yeah, go ahead, right?
0: Well, and there maybe there's uh, like we always say too, as the advisor, maybe they that that group of five, maybe they have an underlying traditional insured plan. So you got to factor that in, like if if the shareholder participates in that, well, you might say, well, the HSA should be a little bit lower then because that's part of total compensation. Is there an RSP plan? Is there, you know, like so you have to know the full picture and then come up with to your point, if I was going to hire someone to do my role, um, you know, what would I actually what would that package look like? Look correct. Like, what would that be? The one thing I do find in our industry um, is is a lot of times, uh, which is probably good, but they actually sell that themselves short. So, like, if they're clearly an employee and they're an executive and they're really like their role's pretty important and the business is at pretty good scale from a revenue standpoint, they probably would get a pretty nice compensation package if they were in a similar role in a truly an employee. So if anything too, sometimes we find, uh, people are actually discounting it too much. Um, but that's also a good, like I, we always err on the side of caution, so I don't hate it, but we do find a lot of times is they think that executives should only have $1,000 where, you know, typically the starting point is like $5,000 and, you know, they're the real driver of the business. You know, they're the COO, the CFO, the salesperson. Um, if they were going to go work for a competitor, they'd have a much larger compensation package.
1: Yeah, it's, uh it, that's, I, I guess you're right. It's better to err on the side of being conservative. Also nice to have that cushion if the advisor wants to work. And like you said before, this might be a good year to be revisiting plan design. Maybe that's something for advisors out there to think about? Can you go back to your folks right now and have a, a robust discussion about whether or not they're taking full advantage of their HSA? For sure. Now, what about for uh, larger employers? I don't know how much of this you have under this sort of my HSA umbrella, but you know what happens when you get sort of beyond the family business? So now you've got like a I don't know, a 60 or a 100 or a 200 life group. How much of that uh, do you see and what differences do you see there?
0: So um, definitely the the shareholder questions get taken off the table, which is nice. So these are more, now we're talking more plan design. Um, so what to, what to give employees. Um, we've actually seen, so we started out thinking that we were in kind of the, the 10, 2 to 10 person Group size groups, but we we've actually gone well beyond that, and we're in the uh, like our sweet spot. We always say is is probably zero to to 100 employees, Um, and it's and it's kind of unique because what you'll see the different products that they use. So many of the once you get to be a larger employer, you'll have a traditional insured plan, which we've always loved. So we've always kind of been the company that said. We were insurance advisors, we get it. Um, you need insurance, like insurance is great. Um, so you, you typically what will be used in the larger groups is as a top-up. So a top-up, because you might have cost controls in where there's a, a drug copay of 80%, but they want to give a lump sum that's flexible to maybe use against the that 20% that wasn't covered. Um, and then, like what we've seen since getting into the business is HSAs have taken off because of flexibility. There's, there's five generations in the workforce. So if you're a group of 20, so yeah, you're big enough where you could get a traditionally insured plan, but you could potentially in 20 employees have five different generations. Well, coming up with a benefits plan to meet all those needs, that's, that's hard to do. So, and HSA is a great way because there's kind of something for everyone, and if you incorporate the wellness side, that 20-year-old who basically thinks that the insurance is a joke and doesn't want it because he doesn't think he's invincible and nothing will ever happen to him, if you throw in a $500 uh, wellness account, well, they think the employer is great because they not they're not going to use the traditional insurance, but they might use the Fitness reimbursement, and it's in the employers. They can curate that wellness list, and it's in their best interest that they can actually um, keep the employee and have incentive to keep them active, healthy, um, which will only only work better for them. So then, what we see too is the larger and larger group size will be used as a top-up, and then how the top-ups used will actually start to change. So actually, we have a lot of larger groups where the top-up is a flex plan. So they're saying, we're going to top their insurance plan up by, say, $1,000, but we're going to take it one step further and say, we're going to let them allocate it at the beginning of the year, whether they save it for HSA or they want to use it for WSA. Then they actually start to incorporate group RSPs into the options too. So, so, and then the really large groups use us for just the WSA. So they kind of because they've got the HSA. Because once you get to a certain size, the insurer can put in the HSA, and they they start to get competitive on fees, and they actually start to pay the advisor and things like that. So at a certain point, we don't make sense. It's just easier to have it with the insurance company. But we'll sometimes be added as the um, just the wellness spending account.
1: That makes a ton of sense. I never would have thought about that as you really
0: being a like a my WSA here, yes, right? It's, totally. I've yeah. always said I hate uh, like I've, everyone in our office knows like personally I hate our name because <laughs> it's kind of how we started, but really we're spending accounts. Um, we're not just HSAs, and we spend a lot of time educating advisors that of uh, here's everything we can do. And they're always like, oh, well, this is way more than just HSAs. And I'm like, this darn name. I get it. But the name sticks. I think the name. I know. Sticks. Yeah. yeah it's a- and it's what, we, yeah, it's what we started in. So that's what, yeah, we'll go with it.
1: Now, what about, and I think this is becoming less common, but maybe I'm just not paying enough attention. Um, but what about when you have the HSA administered either in-house or administered by that the accountant who's who says we'll just run your claims don't worry about paying these guys whatever five percent or whatever the the fee is on the hsa
0: super common uh it's actually probably more common than than one would think um it's a common question that comes up and the surprising answer is it's totally allowable so and that's what we found some people will argue that you have to use a third party um, due to privacy But uh, probably two years ago, we called the, I can't remember if it's called the Privacy Commission, we actually called them and said, can a company run their own health PHSP, even though they're going to see their employees' private medical information? The answer that we got is yes, because it's an established plan, there's no way to run the plan unless they see the information, so they have to see it. Now, our argument, so we always say, like, yes, a company can run their own HSA, but really let's think about it. You do you want to see your employees information? Most HR people, even accountants, say not a chance, because people won't put in claims for things that they really need to potentially get help with. If there's depression psychologists uh expenses or costs for depression related drugs. Um it's a real scary thing if they either don't buy it or they won't get reimbursed for it <clears throat> for fear of someone in the company seeing it. So that's usually the number one where if you you lay that out, the, the employer goes, yeah, we don't want to do it. The other thing too is, okay, the employer can can create their own private health services plan. Are they going to operate it correctly? Do they know the carryover rules? Are they going to apply the shareholder questions? Are they going to ask the right questions to their bosses? Um, and the big thing is, what if one of their bosses has one of these gray claims that shouldn't get through? Uh, are they going to push those through? And the, the biggest thing that we find is <clears throat> sometimes the H- PHSP, so it needs to be managed, but the advisor is valuable in Making sure that the plan's created, making sure that the vendor's good. So, companies like us um, are doing our job and and knowing what's out there for options. But then, from if you take a step back, like larger scope on the benefits is maybe a HSA doesn't make sense and they they should know about an insured component or some analysis needs to be done on utilization of claims. Um, You know, like, so it's just like the value of the advisor can do at that point it's worth the 10% or the, whatever the fee is, the fees just aren't worth the headache. The other thing too, is I always say to employers is, um, okay. How are you willing to defend if you're seeing the claims and the claims is for a depression drug, you fire that employee for something completely different, but that employee knows that you process their claims That is the easiest low hanging fruit for them for a wrongful dismissal, even though it could be completely false, but that's a hard hole to get yourself out of. Once you've seen that information, you can't unsee it. So they know you know it. um, And and then you've got to defend that. No, no, that's not what it is. It's just, I don't think the liability is worth 10%. I 100% agree with that. And also
1: it's not even like if you're doing it in house, you're still paying somebody to do the claims. If you're having the accountant do it, it's not like accountants run their businesses for free. I've never met a, a an accountant who who runs on a 100% pro bono model. That's not a thing. So
0: yeah, and and they have to go track down like think their are accountants, and we know that like a lot of accountants aren't up to speed on the medical exempt tax credit list. So unless like if you have to go look at that and determine, maybe call the provider to make sure that the, you know like how are they adjudicating the claims that's the other thing tracking down the information to your point if they're billing hourly I guarantee a 10% fee to a tech company that knows it inside and out is probably way more economical than an account as uh, you know a CPA firm uh, even if it's a junior person there at an hourly rate is probably gonna cost way more. So we don't see a lot of pushback. The question gets asked a lot, but usually our advisors with our help, it's like we can put that to bed real quick. So uh, just when we were chatting uh, offline before you had mentioned that
1: you uh, you've done your SEBS designation and you're working on the fellowship level there. Can you chat a little bit about what led you to pursue that and, and how
0: that's working for you now? Um. Actually, that's a funny story. So when we first launched in on our own in two thousand and thirteen, so part of the sale of the former company was called BKI Financial. because Tim and I had already owned the company, My HSA, and I was an, an owner, a shareholder in it, part of the requirement on the sale was that I quit. I have to quit at the day of the sale. So I was essentially out of work pursuing my HSA. And that's when, it, and I my first born child, my first, my son was on the way and I went, whew, if this doesn't work, I've got to go get a job somewhere. And I had, I had done my GBA, which is one of the designations inside of the Siege, But I, I literally went, I got to finish this designation. So if I hit the job market, I want this designation in hand. Um, so I pursued that um, I loved it. And it's like the hard thing is we talked about is nobody gets in the benefits knowing that it's a career path. So the SEBs designation is a great way um, to learn the business as you're working in the business. Um, the other thing is when you get your life and a and license, which I'm sure you know, there's like what, five questions on group benefits, if that. Yeah. So there's not a, there's really not a lot of training available, um, where the seeds gives you that. Um, and it's starting to be more and more recognized, I think in the industry. Um, and then the fellowship, I think I first got my fellowship status in 2017 and I've just maintained it ever since. And the cool thing about that is, um, you write an exam every year but, and they give you the content. So there's a retirement and a uh, group benefits arm. So you can do one or the other or both. I always do both. Um, and it works. It, it basically is curated information on the most current trends in both of the spaces that's given to you. So um, like, I, I personally think the seeds is great. The fellowship is, is the real kind of, Um, the real magic, because it it makes sure that you're up to speed on the retirement, the pension retirement stuff, as well the group benefits information. And for someone who's so niche in what we do, um, I always like to know kind of the benefits landscape, you know, what's really happening in advisors lives, and what are they hearing and seeing. So this is a great way for me to keep plugged into their world. Can you give an idea
1: roughly about the and maybe this is different from when you took it but about the level of commitment to like from zero to you know financial time that kind of thing do you remember roughly what that looked like
0: Yeah I don't think it was too expensive that was a nice thing because I didn't have much money then so it was um it wasn't very expensive and you would pay per course so you could kind of uh so they changed it so when I did it there was three. So inside of the SEEDS designation, there was three smaller designations. So there was a GBA, Group Benefits Associate, an RPA. So you'll see a lot of defined contribution, Group RSP uh, Account Manager, Account Executives get the RPA, which is uh, Registered Pension Associate, I believe. And then there was a third one, which I was really cool, uh, CMS, so a Compensation Management Specialist. Um, And the idea is you just needed to get two of the designations in order to get your seeds and one or two courses in the third. Um, Now they've changed it and they've dropped the compensation aspect of it. I think they've incorporated some of the material into the GBA world. And basically you just get your GBA and RPA and then you get the seeds designation, but you can do just one of them. The information, um, I found it was, it was kind of self-learning. I don't know if they've gotten more of an online aspect now. I don't think they do, but basically it was, you get a binder full of information, study it. Um, and then, and then you go and write a proctored exam. Um, if you're in the industry, it's a lot easier. Um, so I'd say like out of 10, it's probably like a seven commitment. Um, but it's always easier when you're like, I know some people that have been in the business a while, it's so hard to study for stuff when you're working full time and you're established and, and doing everything. Um, but it's, it's not too much of a commitment cause I've looked at like my CFA back when I was, you know, freshly graduated, I looked at an accounting designation. Like, I don't think it's quite on those levels for time commitment and cost commitment. Um, there's no degree requirement that I'm aware of at this point. Um, so it's, it's definitely attainable. It's something that, that anyone in group benefits could, could go after. Uh, I really like to see people pursue those in that sort of two to five
1: years in the business space and, uh, 100% echo your comments about group benefits in the LLQP. You do not come away from LLQP with a sufficient understanding of
0: group to actually do a, I think a decent job. You better have somebody mentoring you. I'm curious, Jason, what's your thoughts? Because I know some people, especially out East, have talked about a different license for group benefits. What's your thought on that? Yeah, I, I would love that. I mean, that's what you see in Quebec, right? The insurance of persons
1: is the individual license and insurance of group is the group license. And you actually, like, it's a completely different education path. Um, And this is something that actually Dave Patriash and I have chatted about. What I would love to get into is if you could find... And the data is out there, actually. Um I can't remember right now if it's uh, CISRO or CCIR, but one of the two entities collects a whole bunch of data from insurers every year. They go out and they have this like 25-page spreadsheet where they collect data. And it would be fascinating to me to see if there's a difference in outcomes for group benefits clients in Quebec with the insurance of group licensing versus the other provinces. And I know there's other differences in Quebec. I actually... I know in Quebec, you don't have the same tax
0: treatment for HSAs, right? So everything's, an HSA in Quebec is taxable, but the one thing you have to be careful of, which we just learned, is um, you can't offer, you can't reimburse drugs at all through an HSA, because if someone takes any type of insured plan, it has to be equal or better, I believe, to the RAMQ offering. So you have to take drugs completely out of it unless it's just a wellness plan. Um, so they're rare, but we, we have seen uh, advisors ask for it. We work with, we're across Canada now, so we've got a, quite a few advisors in Ottawa. And that's where you see, they might be an Ottawa-based company, but with employees in Quebec, um, we go based on, and this is an accounting question, some people would argue you don't need to, but we go based on where the employee resides and where those expenses are incurred. That's how we do it. So we do have where there's an HSA in place for the Ontario employees, but that small group of Quebec employees, they need a um, an HSA, it's fully taxable, strip out the drugs component, um, but the challenge there is even RamQ, like I say that, and, and we're not, we don't profess to be experts on how things are run in Quebec. So it's a huge learning curve. And like, I don't speak or read French. So it's, it's a challenge for me to figure out exactly what is and isn't allowable there. I, I feel your pain on this one. We have some challenges ourselves as, uh, as we are
1: sort of expanding into Quebec. It's, uh, it's difficult just a different set of rules um do you have any last minute comments anything that you uh wanted to get out there in terms of hsa's or uh the group benefits world overall steve
0: no i think i think we chatted about a wide range of things which is all, it's always good to nerd out with you jason on group benefits stuff um yeah and i love what you're doing i love the podcast and i think it's uh it's a great testament to everything you guys do at uh, Business Career College. Um, I love what you guys have done over the years. And you've been a great supporter, of course, over the years as well. I've learned a ton
1: from you about uh, health spending accounts and all kinds of tax questions. So appreciate it. Thanks for doing
0: this today. Okay, yeah, no problem. Take care, everyone. All
1: right. Lots of great stuff there. Uh, Steve mentions, one of the challenges that is a very common question for people who deal in more than one province, and that is what happens once you have plan members in Quebec? And Quebec, of course, has a substantially different uh, income tax regime. What happens in Quebec, federal income tax is still the same. If you have a health and dental plan, the employer pays premiums on that plan. The employer deducts premiums and the employee doesn't pay federal tax on the associated benefit. But on the Quebec income tax side, that is a taxable benefit. And in addition to that, RAMQ, which is the Quebec Provincial Healthcare Plan, is uh, far more generous in a lot of ways than what you'll see with other provincial uh, health coverages. And because of that, you run into some impediments here. I actually just watched an exchange with Steve and some other folks about this on the uh, Canadian Group Insurance Brokers Slack channel. And it's very difficult to do things like offer a health spending account that's going to have any drug coverage in Quebec. Uh, The rules really put you in a position where you have to be offering something at least as good as the insured plan. And this creates some gray area. Uh, I would suggest that it's probably not generally viable, although Steve might correct me when he hears this, it's generally not viable to consider replacing your drug coverage with a health spending account. Uh, You get into a further question when you're even looking at just offering a health spending account that would have uh, drug coverage associated with it. The number is six. The number is six. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there and you'll want to do well on all five. Past grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits, they say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, I hope you will uh, join us again in two weeks' time. We're going to have Angela Armstrong from from Capital Leasing. Uh, Angela's been a good friend to our business over the years, and you'll hear that she talks a fair bit about helping small business owners through various kinds of challenges and actually something that's sort of a a funny coincidence here is the extent to which her business, which doesn't seem like a technology business, and Steve's business, which doesn't seem like a technology business, but both of them are so heavily reliant on technology to make the service offerings that they have work. There are quite a few people who help out with getting these episodes to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing. Maria Nguyen takes care of all of our continuing education approvals. And Sushami Pamelopriquette, Ji uh, Wu, Lisa Hoffert, and Penny Watt, my mother, make sure that we have people listening to the podcast through their marketing and sales efforts. Thank you so much.